Good morning. It is a delight to be with you this morning, and I ask you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. As you're doing so, you may have noticed in your bulletin this morning an insert which is rare for us, but uh, please, if you will, let me encourage you, if you haven't read this already, tuck this away in your Bible or in your pocket and then let it make its way to uh, your Bible this week. It really is a good summary of a great deal of what we'll be speaking of this morning in the next few minutes. I think it will be very helpful to you as you ask the question, what is it that I am doing as I come to the Word of God? I think it may be very, very helpful. This morning, this is the second of uh, uh, topical sermons, four of them, to help us as a body to unpack the updated purpose statements which your elders have labored over for some months. Last week, Pastor Caleb introduced the first section, and you'll find in the box at the end of your announcement section of your bulletin, uh, the reprint of that uh, statement, that Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church exists to pursue transformation by truth and grace together for the glory of of Jesus Christ. That's the opening statement. That's the why. That's the passion. That's the purpose for which we exist. But how will we accomplish that? Then you'll see three statements that follow. Faithfully communicating all of God's word by gathering in the lost and equipping the saints for active participation in ministry. Well, my task this morning is the phrase faithfully communicating all of God's inerrant word. In other words, a Godward, Christ-centered life is built upon humble submission to the fullness of God's inerrant word given to us. Humble submission to the majesty of God's unerring word. Well, as an introduction to that, let me take you to De Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're not going to exposit this particular passage but I want you to hear what Moses says to the Israelites after they have come out of Egypt, they have completed their wandering, they have seen the miraculous events that the Lord has done on their behalf, they have also seen in the mirror of God's holiness all of their foolish wickedness throughout these years. And then Moses says to them in chapter 10 and verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yes, the Lord set, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. It's a remarkable statement that is almost altogether about the Lord himself. Certainly here in this statement is a reflection of what we are called to. And yet what we are called to is altogether 
based on who the Lord is in and of himself. Look at verse 14. We see the foundational starting point of all truth, that God is the creator and the owner of all things, that the panoply of all of creation belongs to the Lord, and you and I belong to the Lord above all things. In verse 15, we see the unmerited kindness of God, his grace, his undeserved affection, which he had said upon the forefathers of those to whom Moses was speaking. And in verses 12 through 13, God says, here is how we're going to live in this gracious relationship. I call you to fear me, to reverence my majestic holiness, to walk in my ways, to love me first and above everything to serve me with your whole being, and to observe my commands. So dear ones, in this section of Deuteronomy, and for our purposes this morning, what Moses is unfolding is the context of all of our lives, the person and the work of God and all of his majestic holiness. That's the starting point. That is the fabric for everything that we do and for all that we think and all that we are. So let me give you just a few brief select passages that show us the testimony of how consistent God's word is across the board, that God is over all things and to God belong all things. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who dwell therein, Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. In other words, before ever there was anything but God himself, this God was the God of all. This God was the God who in and of himself was worthy of all worship and praise. Isaiah 66, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Has not my hand made all these things? First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. And then we'll sum it up with Paul's words in Colossians 1, verse 16. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let me give you a thought. You look at what's going on in our country right now, and you wonder, doesn't it seem to be coming apart at the seams? Let me tell you what coming apart at the seams really means. If King Jesus removed his sovereign hand from our world for a moment, that's what it means. He is over all things, and to him all things belong. 
But with all of that as as sort of the background music for our study this morning, let me ask you, what do you think of the importance of God's self-revelation, of his unerring testimony of himself, his word? What do you think of it when you sit under the preaching of the word of God? What are you thinking when you open your Bible to read it, whether it's in a Bible study with others or on your own lap in your personal devotions? When you crack your Bible open, what are you looking for? To be inspired with high thoughts? To be encouraged? To have a guiding thought for the day? For guidance for a decision that you need to make? Those things are not wrong in and of themselves, but let me say this so clearly. They're utterly unworthy of the full sense of why God has given us his scriptures. Utterly inadequate. When we approach the scriptures, we often come to the scriptures the way we go to the deli counter at the store. Uh, Sir or ma'am, please give me a quarter pound of this and a half pound of that. And oh, let let me taste a little bit of that, please. And we put it to our lips. And what do we sometimes do? We say, no, no, that's, that's not at all what I'm looking for. And we do that with the word of the Lord. And so the great challenge when we come to an open Bible or to worship and the word of God is being preached is to read the scriptures according to their own terms, according to what God designed when he has given us his scriptures to receive God as calling us into his world, his thoughts, his desires, and his heart. What we are so often missing as we come to the scriptures is to come to the scriptures with the understanding that they are given to us for our transformation, not merely our information. This is what the Lord is after and what we're after here at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. And so I want you to look with me briefly this morning at three ways in which we're meant to come to God's Word in order to be transformed. You'll see these in their essence in that handout that was in your bulletin first. The reading of God's Word rightly means that we are brought into the presence of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. When you crack open your Bible You're not simply cracking open a historical record. You're not simply looking into propositional truths. You are opening the revelation of God himself to us that we would be brought into his presence and to his dominion. We're meant to take God and his world not as something that we invite into our world But God is inviting us into the supremacy of his world, his presence, his kingship. We're bid to see our world and our lives through his eyes and through his heart. If you were to come into the entrance of Christ Covenant School above one of the arches of the doorways, you would see 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, a portion of verse 5 written there, and it's this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, 
We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now think about that language. That's the language of the military. To take something captive is to conquer it and to bring it under your own dominion. And that's exactly what God is doing through his word. He's taking captive your life and mine, degree by degree by degree. He's bringing about his dominion, his reign in our hearts and lives. God intends for his word to get inside of us transformatively. Dr. Eugene Peterson, uh, whose writings are not always to be trusted, nonetheless in, in this quote, I think gets it right on the money. Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nourishes as food nurtures the human body. Christians do not simply learn the word nor study the word, We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love and cups of cold water and missions to the world and evangelism and adoration of our Father. You see, the word of Scripture is to be taken into our soul as we take food into our mouths, to be tasted, to be felt, to be chewed, to be savored, to be swallowed and then digested and life drawn from this word. Now when you and I think of eating in the West, we think of eating in a particular way. If you've traveled to different parts of the world, you know that people eat very differently in very different cultures. But here in the West, when we think of eating rather nonchalantly, we think of a table We think of a plate, we think of a napkin, we think of utensils, we think of a glass, and we think of something that is largely without a great mess unless you're a parent feeding a two-year-old. But it's not that way in much of the world. And it is not meant to be that way when we come to the Word of God. Instead of thinking table manners, think of a lion over its prey. Think of an eagle with a rabbit in its talons, in its nest. Think of a dog with a steak bone. There is a hunger that is to be satisfied. There's an effort and an energy over this divine revelation. There is time spent over the food. The eyes, the teeth, the tongue, the jaws, the stomach of the soul are all to be engaged as we come to the word. But if you're honest with yourself, as I am with myself sometimes, that's not the way we come to God's word. We come often wanting a little help at the beginning of the day to assuage our conscience and then be on our way. It ought not to be so, dear ones. The scriptures are real food for the soul and we are to eat and drink and digest in order to be formed in Christ. And we need to be rid of this idea that we are self-sufficient people who just need a little help now and then from God. And so we come to the Lord's Word, to the advice column of God for a little encouragement, a little guidance, a little inspiration, a thought for the day. Let me put it differently. 
rather than that, picture yourself as an infant at the breast of God. That's what we are. Utterly in need, as Caleb spoke to the children this morning, utterly in need of the milk of the word of God that we might grow into the fullness and the likeness of Christ. We're infants whose very life depends upon the word getting into us, formatively growing and changing us. And so the first thing this morning when we come to the word is to recognize this, that we're coming to the presence and the kingship and the dominion of God over us and in us. Nothing less than that will do as an understanding of what we're doing when we come to the Word of God. Well, there's a second commitment of our hearts and minds as we approach the Scriptures this morning, and it's this. The text of Scripture, of God's self-revelation, is the authoritative text for Christian formation. The authoritative text for Christian formation, or we might say sanctification. The scripture is God's authoritative voice spoken into our lives. This is nothing more nor less than the great Reformation principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the infallible and inerrant voice of God into our lives. Yet follow along with me and see if this isn't true of you. That often the voice of authority, practically speaking, in many a Christian life, is the sovereign voice of myself. I come to Scripture with all manner of preconceived things that I need and I want and I feel. And so rather than coming to a Trinitarian God who has given us this glorious revelation to transform our lives... We come to the Word with the substitute unholy trinity of our wants, our feelings, and our needs. And we look into the Word of God somehow to solve the problem that we have in that moment. You see, what happens when we do that is that we have replaced the unerring authoritative revelation of God with the, quote, authoritative self that incessantly demands to be heard. My inner man speaks to me all the time. And about 98% of the time, what my inner man says to me is contrary to the word of God. And yet we have it so backwards so often, even as the earnest people of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul set us straight in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now before I read this, please note that in its context, Paul, in writing to Timothy, is speaking these words to Timothy principally as an evangelist in the churches. But the general principles here are true for all believers. Listen to what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
You see, the word of God given by God for us to be transformed is more than adequate. It is altogether sufficient for teaching, reproof, correction, for training that we would be equipped for every good work. It is the authoritative, alone, inerrant word that speaks into your wants, your needs, and your feelings. Well, so here at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church, whether from the pulpit as we are here in corporate worship, whether from the podiums in our Sunday school classrooms, whether in our personal devotions, whether in a Bible study with men or women, whether in Christ's Covenant School, this extraordinary ministry that God has given us now for over 21 years as we come into our 22nd year, please rejoice with us that this fall, Christ's Covenant School will have an enrollment approaching 450 students on campus every single day. That's more than the number of people that are in this room right now. Isn't that remarkable? Whether it is in any ministry in our church, the one-story curriculum ministry that Dr. John Kwasney has been writing in its various pieces for over 15 years, that is used in one form or another in over 200 churches throughout the United States. What's the goal? Why do we do that? Because we are utterly convinced that it is the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, that God intends to use to transform us. Why is it that our musicians and our choir, if you looked at what we sang this morning and what was sung to the Lord on our behalf, why is it all word-centered instead of centered on emotion and feeling, although there will be great emotion and great feeling in good music for this very reason. We have mistakenly allowed a wrong view of the Scripture to seep into our thinking that the Bible is primarily informational. And if I can just get enough of that information inside of me, I can go and be the one that God wants me to be. And that is nothing more than Phariseeism. God, tell me what to do and I will go do it. That will dry up and rot your soul. Scripture is much more. It is the revelation of God designed to be transformational. God has revealed himself to us in order to shape us as a redeemed people in his own image. We're invited in the scriptures to learn of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just as facts to be believed, but as persons to whom we are reconciled and into whom we are invited to the most intimate relationship that humans can ever have. Scripture is God speaking and acting and and relating and commanding and redeeming and judging and wooing as three persons to us as persons. And each of us is called and, and must answer to God for the repentance that is necessary for the other voices that we have allowed to become formative for us. Let me list several. 
your fears. Every one of us in this room at some level or another, some much more than others, have one authoritative voice in their life and that is what they are afraid of and everything revolves around that. Ambition. Lustful desires. Now you remember, and we've said it many a time from our pulpits, a lustful desire doesn't just mean a sexual desire. That's what immediately pops into our mind. But the Greek word for a strong desire, translated lust in the New Testament many, many different times, just means an inordinate desire for anything. Sometimes we have desires that we are ruled by, our wants. And we're called to return to the one authoritative voice for spiritual formation, God the Spirit, through his unerring word. Well, we've seen that scripture, when we come to it, brings us to God's presence and his dominion, nothing less. And that scripture is the authoritative voice for our spiritual formation. And I want to close this morning with a third and a final truth for us to wrestle with. That God intends as we come to his word for us to rediscover that every moment of our life is to be lived in radical dependence before his face. There's a Latin phrase that you've heard from us before, quorum Deo before the face of God. And it simply means that we're to be reminded that there is no time, whether we are at our best or at our absolute worst, when we are not before the face of God. And that we're to learn to live that we are always in that position before God's face. And so then to live in utter dependence upon God in that posture. We must rediscover that God has given us not this deposit of truth of the scriptures as a static bucket of truths that once we have learned, we can go off and, and then do what we are commanded to do. That's, as I said, Phariseeism. We're not meant to look at the scripture's call to obedience as a bare question of what can I do to fix my problems? What can I do to get the help that I need? Rather, obedience is the obedience that flows from a childlike faith that we are trusting our Father, that he has given us in himself and in his revelation everything necessary to walk in intimacy and obedience with him. In other words, when we're looking at obedience, we're also always looking at this question of how am I? And where am I before the face of God? Obedience is not bare law-keeping, although it is law-keeping. It is a God-focused communion, a growing desire to do what pleases Him because before His face, it delights a child to see a smile on his father's face. If you've had the privilege of being a father or an uncle or a grandfather or a mentor to a young person, 
Isn't one of the most beautiful moments in life that we love to experience is when we have loved well someone who is young or instructed them in a crucial way and they look back at us with that smile of understanding and recognition and they say, thank you. That's what we're talking about. That before the face of God, you look at your father in all of his instruction, in all of his gifts, in all of the giving of himself in Jesus Christ, and you go, thank you. This is amazing. This is life. This is what it really means to live. Psalm... uh, Psalm 19, which Caleb read earlier, begins with that section where the psalmist extols God for his general revelation in all the heavens and all of creation. And then he moves to the beauty of special revelation, which revives the soul, makes wise the simple, gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes, to the soul. But he closes this way in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth And the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The great reformer Martin Luther was often wont to say, you must have a religion of personal pronouns. My rock and my redeemer. Oh, my rock, oh, my redeemer, oh, my father, oh, my savior. Let the meditations of my thoughts and the words of my mouth and the deeds of my hands and feet bring a smile to your countenance. That's what we're all about here at Pear Orchard. In a broken and imperfect way, but that's the longing of your leaders I trust it will become more and more the longing of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, as we have said, we need to be reminded over and over again that we are not the author of our own spiritual formation. It is your sovereign grace by the work of your spirit through this indelible, unerring word that is the ultimate arbiter of of our spiritual formation. Oh, Lord, we beg you, have your way, that we would more and more prize the likeness of Jesus, your Son. We pray to his glory.